our privilege this morning to hear from Weston Duke, our RUF campus minister at MTSU. Um, he will be bringing us the word this morning. Welcome, brother. Well, thank you, Jeff. As he just said, my name is Weston Duke, and I'm the campus minister for the campus ministry, RUF at MTSU. And just in case you weren't aware, RUF at MTSU is one of the ministries that your church supports. So my name is among that list in your bulletin of the uh, prayer request. And so I just want to take this opportunity to say thank you for your church's generous and faithful support of our work in Murfreesboro. And it's my privilege to be here with you this morning to make our partnership a little bit more mutual. We are going to be looking at a parable this morning. And in case you're not familiar with the parables, these are simple stories that Jesus told in order to illustrate spiritual truths. This was an incredibly common teaching technique of Jesus. If you read through the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will encounter a lot of different parables, many of which are unique to each book. But there are only a few parables that show up in all of the synoptic gospels, and today's text is one of them. So obviously this is something that the gospel writers wanted us to know. A little bit of context for you before we read. These two little parables actually come in a string of parables that are all about the kingdom of God, or to use Matthew's preferred phrase, the kingdom of heaven. And there has been a lot of ink spilled over what the kingdom of God is, but let me give you my basic definition. The kingdom of God is God's saving reign being realized on earth. This is what we pray for every week in the Lord's Prayer when we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I wanted to give you that def definition because Jesus here tells us not what the kingdom of God is, but what the kingdom of God is like. And so with that, let's now turn our attention to God's word. This is Matthew 13, verses 31 through 33. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nest in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us as we come to it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have uh, not only brought your kingdom to this earth, but you have told us what your kingdom is like. Lord, we know that we can only understand that through the power of your spirit, and so we pray that, that your spirit would be with us today, helping us to understand what Jesus has for us in these two little parables. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, I know that you as a church have interacted with several RUF campus ministers over the years. So allow me to let you in on a little secret about RUF campus ministers. And I think Jeff would back me up on this. Do you know what question every campus minister hates being asked? It is, so how many people come to your RUF? Now, I know that whenever someone asks that question, it's not ill-intentioned. They are usually genuinely interested in our ministry, and they're just trying to get a sense of what it's like on our campus. 
But that question stirs up all of our personal insecurities. Because it doesn't matter what good things are happening in our ministries. There's always some other ministry on campus that has more students coming to its meetings and is reporting more conversions. And the reason that we are insecure about that is because even as pastors, we have bought into the idea that success looks like something big and dramatic and measurable. If we're doing effective ministry on campus, then shouldn't we be able to rattle off some stats that demonstrate that we're getting results? Well, it's not surprising that we would think this way because we have been conditioned to think this way, especially as Americans. We are a society that loves metrics. We are a data-driven culture. Think about it. We assign rankings to college football teams even before the season starts based on how many four- and five-star recruits they got, and we believe that those numbers can predict success in the coming season. Or in election years, the media is always telling us polling numbers and amount of dollars raised, thinking that that will give us an indication of who will win the election. In college, I know that most of my students feel some pressure to have a good GPA, believing that that will determine their success in life. But even after college, when you realize that your GPA doesn't matter, <laughs> we just adopt new metrics for ourselves, whether that's our numbers at work or our income or our weight or how many activities our kids are in. We like being able to point to things that are vis visible and measurable to say that we are significant and successful. And it's not surprising that we would bring that same mindset to Christianity. If Christianity is true and God is sovereignly bringing his saving reign upon the earth, then shouldn't it be happening in a way that is big and observable and measurable? Well, Jesus originally spoke these two parables to a group of people who thought very similarly. In verse 31, we're told that Jesus put another parable before them. And if we were to go back and read these verses in the context of the rest of Matthew 13, we would see that Jesus isn't telling these parables to the crowds. No, he has pulled his disciples off to the side and he is telling these parables to them. And these are people who have heard Jesus preaching, they have seen him perform miracles, and they have believed on him as their Messiah, their long-awaited Savior. And so they are very eager for Jesus to usher in his kingdom in dramatic fashion. And Jesus tells these parables to communicate to them and to us that that's not how the kingdom of God works. That's not what the kingdom of God is like. No, the kingdom of God comes in a way that we don't expect. How does the kingdom of God come? Well, as we look at these two parables this morning, we're going to see three things. The kingdom of God has insignificant origins, inconspicuous growth, but incredible results. So first, we see that the kingdom of God has insignificant origins. In the first of these two parables, Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a grain of mustard seed that a man sowed in the field. And to make his point of comparison clear, Jesus then adds, it is the smallest of all seeds. Now, this isn't literally true. The mustard seed isn't the smallest seed that exists, so we have to give Jesus a little bit of poetic license here. But he chooses the mustard seed because it was the smallest of seeds that was commonly planted by farmers at this time. Consequently, 
The mustard seed had become proverbial in Jewish thought for its smallness. And if you've ever eaten whole grain mustard, then you have a general idea of how small a mustard seed is. If you were to press your thumb into a pile of them, probably about 40 would stick to the tip of your thumb. Yet from this tiny seed, from this thing that is so small and seemingly insignificant, the kingdom of God grows. Jesus reinforces this idea with a second parable. And if there were any women among his disciples who maybe weren't as familiar with farming, they would have been familiar with baking. During that time, you couldn't go to Kroger or Aldi or Publix to buy a loaf of bread. Everybody made their own bread at home. And so Jesus compares the kingdom of God to leaven in bread. Now, during this time, you also couldn't buy packets of fast-acting yeast. So the way that you would leaven bread is by taking a piece of the old dough and working it into the new dough to make it rise. And to draw out the seeming insignificance of this piece of leaven, Jesus says that the woman took it and put it in three measures of flour. Now, you're probably wondering, how much is three measures of flour? That seems like a vague unit of measurement. Is that like three cups of flour? Well, this actually would have been 50 to 60 pounds of flour. And that little piece of leaven would have seemed like nothing in comparison to so much flour and so much dough. But Jesus says that from this little leaven, the kingdom of God spreads. It comes from seemingly insignificant origins. Now, on the one hand, this surprises us because we are conditioned to think that great things come in big packages. But on the other hand, this shouldn't surprise us because this is the way the kingdom of God has always come. When Jesus first showed up on the scene, he began preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand. And why did he say that? Because its king had come. Jesus was the king who was bringing in his kingdom. And this king also had insignificant origins. Where was this king born? In a palace? No. In a feeding trough for animals. And do you know what people said when they heard where he was from? What good can come from Nazareth? Even the people in his own hometown rejected him because he was just the son of the local contractor. And the religious leaders at the time rejected him in part because he didn't have the right credentials as a rabbi. But this apparent nobody was in fact the king who was bringing God's kingdom to earth. So Jesus himself shows us that God's kingdom has always come from seemingly insignificant origins. And it continues to come in that way, which means that the small things matter. Our small, ordinary acts of faithfulness may seem insignificant to us, but they are the mustard seeds from which the kingdom of God grows. They are the leaven from which the kingdom of God spreads. So parents, let me talk to you for a moment. The small things that you do with your kids really do matter. Things like reading the Bible and praying with and for your kids may seem very ordinary and even insignificant in comparison to all the messages that they are constantly hearing from the world around them. But those are the seeds from which the kingdom of God grows in our children's lives. The same is true of the small ways that we live out our faith before them. Now, as parents, we realize pretty quickly that our kids are watching everything that we do 
they pick up on all of those little behaviors that we may not have even realized about ourselves, and then they imitate them. But this means that they notice your small acts of obedience to God, and they learn to follow God from watching you. Another small way that we can live out the gospel before our kids is asking for their forgiveness. A few months ago, there was an article in the New York Times entitled, How to Apologize to a Child. And it featured a Covenant Seminary professor of counseling who did his doctoral dissertation on that very subject. And in this article, he said that he often does an informal poll in his classes and asks his students how often they heard an apology from their parents growing up. And sadly, he said that the results skewed towards once or never. Well, how can we get our kids to take seriously a faith that is based on the forgiveness of sins if they never see us ask for forgiveness? But on the other hand, when we do humble ourselves and apologize to our children, we are preparing them to humble themselves before God. Even if you're not a parent here this morning, your small, ordinary acts of faithfulness are still the leaven from which the kingdom of God spreads in this world. You know, we might be tempted to think that in order for cultural renewal to happen, we need to get the right politicians in place with the right policies and the right public programs. But this parable tells us that that's going to happen on a much smaller scale. It happens when we volunteer our time to someone in need or, or when we share what we have with someone who has less or when we seek to be salt and light in our workplaces. Or we might believe that in order for people to come to faith, we need to have churches with impressive programs that draw people in so that they can hear from the really gifted people who have more brains and charisma than us. Well, I believe this parable tells us that people are more likely to come to faith when we do things like get to know our neighbors who aren't Christians, when we pray for them, when we ask them questions about their life and their beliefs, when we share with them about what we believe, and then we invite them to our churches with impressive programs and great speakers and great music. As the prophet Zechariah tells us, we should not despise the day of small things because the kingdom of God has insignificant origins. We also see in these parables that the kingdom of God has inconspicuous growth. So if we slow down and we reflect on these two metaphors that Jesus uses, we will see that the way that the kingdom grows is often slow and invisible to the eye. Think about planting a seed. If you've ever done any gardening, you know that you can't expect a seed to become a full-grown plant overnight. Many of us want that to happen, and that's why we go and buy the fully-grown basil plants from the grocery store rather than starting them from seed. Because seeds grow slowly. When you first plant that seed, it is hidden beneath the surface of the soil, and it kind of looks like nothing's happening. But beneath the surface, that seed is starting to germinate and take root, and then one day it suddenly sprouts beneath the surface of the soil. And that's an exciting day when it does. We want to show everyone, hey, we're a real gardener. We don't kill everything we touch. But then even after it sprouts, it takes days and weeks and months for that plant to reach maturity. And if you were to go out every day and try to measure how much it had grown from the day before, you would probably conclude that it's not doing anything. From day to day, a plant doesn't grow much. Its growth is so gradual as to almost be imperceptible. 
We see a similar message with Jesus' second comparison to the kingdom of God, to leaven and dough. Remember, Jesus is talking about 50 to 60 pounds of flour. So there's a reason that he says that the woman took leaven and hid it in the flour. That little piece of leaven would have been completely enveloped. It disappeared into the dough, and you couldn't really tell if it was having much effect. And then just think about how long it would have taken to knead that leaven all throughout that much dough. If you've ever hand-kneaded dough before, you know how laborious it can be. There's a lot of folding, a lot of pressing, a lot of turning. And nowadays, if you were to go to a bakery and they were doing a big batch of dough like this, they would have this huge mixing machine that does a lot of the kneading and work for you. This poor old woman didn't have one of those. And so she would have spent all day, maybe all weekend, at her kitchen table, slowly kneading the leaven throughout all of the dough. But that's how the kingdom of God grows. It's inconspicuous. It can be so hidden and so slow that it looks like nothing is happening at all. This is why in RUF we have a saying that if someone asks you how the ministry is going, you should reply, I'll tell you in 20 years. We say that because, first of all, we recognize the impact is best measured in the long term. It's not only about the change that we see happen in a person's four or more years of college. It's about what kind of spouses and parents and friends and coworkers and church members they become. But we also say that to remind ourselves as campus ministers that the kingdom of God often grows inconspicuously. You know, to my eyes, it may look like that my ministry to a particular student is having little to no effect. In fact, sometimes it it looks like it's driving the student in the opposite direction. (laughs) I may meet with them repeatedly to talk to them about Jesus. I may invite them to Bible studies in large groups over and over. And all I see is that they're coming more and more sporadically. And I see on social media that they're making more and more baffling decisions. Well, just because I can't see what God is doing in a student's life doesn't mean that he's not doing anything. And if you're a younger Christian here this morning, I want you to keep that in mind. Hopefully you have experienced something of the excitement of becoming a Christian, and rightfully so, because becoming a Christian is the best thing that can happen to a person. But as you get a little further in, you may realize that things are not going the way that you had hoped. God may not seem to be answering some of your prayers. The people that you try to talk to about Jesus may not share your enthusiasm, and you may even be struggling with people in the church because it just seems like everyone here is a bunch of sinners. But please don't assume that because you can't see God working means that he's not. Jesus tells us that God is always working to bring about his kingdom. Sometimes we just can't see it. And do you know what the greatest demonstration of that was? It was the cross of Christ. Because when Jesus was nailed to the cross, what God was doing was hidden from all of his disciples. Remember, these are the guys who had believed on Jesus as their Messiah, as their long-awaited Savior. But when he was nailed to the cross, all they could see were their dreams of the coming of God's kingdom being buried in the ground. All they could see were their hopes being swallowed up by the Roman Empire. What they couldn't see 
is that that was the most significant moment in the coming of God's kingdom. That was the moment that Jesus opened the way for sinners like us to come into his kingdom. And so the cross of Christ helps us to trust that God is always working even when we can't see it. Now, for those of you who have been following Jesus for a while, haven't you found this principle to be true? Haven't you seen the way that God has worked in slow and sometimes secretive ways over the long term? And yet, it is so easy for us to forget that this is how the kingdom of God grows. You know, we we get caught up in a world where we track the shipment of our one-day deliveries, and we start thinking, man, I really wish the kingdom of God worked more like Amazon. Maybe God could hire them to run his fulfillment department. But this is why we need to continually go back to God's word to have our expectations recalibrated. Because it's not just this parable that tells us that God works slowly. It's really the whole arc of the biblical story. When God first fell into sin, excuse me, when humanity first fell into sin in Genesis 3, God didn't fix it immediately. No, he spent thousands of years preparing the way for salvation in the Old Testament. And then at the end of Old Testament history, there were 400 years of silence in which his people were wondering if and when God was going to act. And then Jesus finally shows up onto the scene and announces that the kingdom of God is at hand, but he also says that change is going to continue to be slow and steady. You see, the Lord is always playing the long game. And so as we join with him in the work of his kingdom through our small, ordinary acts of faithfulness, we need to remember that we're playing the long game too. We need to remember that we are playing the long game as we seek to raise our kids up in the Lord or as we seek to share the love of Christ with our neighbors or as we labor for his kingdom in our communities. But we can be patient as we play the long game because Jesus assures us that our labors are not in vain, even when we can't see it. So the kingdom of God has insignificant origins, inconspicuous growth, but by God's power, it produces incredible results. That's our final point this morning. So let's briefly return to the second of these parables first. What happens to that little piece of leaven? Well, it leavens all 60 pounds of flour, and that amount of dough would have made enough bread to feed over 100 people. So incredibly, this little piece of leaven would have resulted in the woman's entire village being fed. Now let's return to the first parable. What happens to that tiny, insignificant mustard seed? Well, Jesus says that it grows up to be larger than any other plant in the garden. And these, the kind of mustard plants that grew in this part of the world could be up to 10 to 12 feet high. So a a seed that is so small that 40 of them could fit in my thumb grows up to be a tree that's twice my height. And then Jesus adds that the birds of the air come and make their nest in its branches. That might seem like a, a weird detail to us, but let's keep in mind that Jesus uses no extra words. So what's he doing by adding this detail? Is he See, using a little bit of irony to add vividness to the incredible growth of the mustard seed, like the the birds that might have eaten the mustard seed are now nesting in its branches. Well, that that certainly is true, but 
Jesus is doing something a little more theological here. As he is wont to do, Jesus is subtly drawing on the Old Testament. He's actually drawing from the passage that we read earlier this morning. When we read Ezekiel 17, you might have thought, "Ah, I thought we had gotten away from Ezekiel. But near the end of that passage, Ezekiel uses this imagery of birds making their nest in the branches of a tree to describe all the nations of the earth coming into the kingdom of the Messiah. And so by drawing on this imagery, Jesus is saying that even though the kingdom of God has insignificant origins and inconspicuous growth, it will incredibly spread throughout all of the world. And it shouldn't be lost on us that we are supporting evidence for this. Here we are, a bunch of people of mostly Western European descent, worshiping a Middle Eastern man who lived over 2,000 years ago. And if you're here this morning and you're still not really sure what you think about Christianity, I want you to ponder that fact. Why are you here this morning? Sure, you may be here because a friend or a family member invited you, but dig a little bit deeper than that. Why are you you sitting in this old building in Columbia, Tennessee, listening to me talk about words that were spoken thousands of years ago? If Jesus was just a good religious teacher who had some nice things to say about how we could live a good life and feel better about ourselves, we would not be sitting here this morning. No, his life and his teaching would just be another drop in the ocean of history. The fact that we are here this morning is only a result of the incredible power of the gospel, which the Apostle Paul tells us is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And he means everyone. The kingdom that Jesus ushered in 2,000 years ago has grown to include people of every ethnicity and culture. It has spread to permeate every educational and socioeconomic class. It has transformed lives and communities and entire civilizations across history and across the globe. You are here this morning because Jesus has brought God's saving reign to earth and it has been spreading in the world all around you. And Jesus can bring it into your life as well. And maybe you're here this morning because the seed has already been planted. And maybe today is the day that it finally sprouts. Now, if you are a Christian here this morning, I simply hope this is encouraging to you. You may feel like Christianity is waning in its influence. As you look around you, it may seem like that your faith in Jesus increasingly puts you in the minority. You may hear reports of people leaving the church in droves. And this can discourage us into thinking that being a Christian is fighting a losing battle. Can our small, ordinary acts of faithfulness really do anything to stop the bleeding? Well, just remember that over the last 2,000 years, Christianity grew from a group of 12 guys and a few women to being the world's largest religion, which now encompasses almost one-third of the global population. I know I rebuffed our reliance on stats a little bit earlier, but here are some numbers for you. A study done on global missions by Gordon-Conwell Seminary found that over the last 200 years, just as philosophers were saying that God is dead and scientists were saying that religion would become obsolete, during that same time period, Christianity went from making up 22.7% of the global population 
to 32.4% of the global population. And all predictions say that that percentage is only going to increase over the coming decades. Here's another stat for you. A recent study done by the Pew Research Center said that Americans raised in non-religious homes are twice as likely to become religious than Protestant Christians are to become non-religious. Now, we don't rely on statistics like these, but they can bolster our confidence in Jesus' words that God is using our small, ordinary acts of faithfulness to advance his kingdom on earth. We may not be able to see it now, but one day we will see the tree fully grown. One day we will see the dough fully leavened. One day Jesus will return and we will proclaim with all the heavenly hosts that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. I recently read a story of a man for whom this will be true. In 1912, there was a Canadian man named Dr. William Leslie who went to be a medical missionary in the remote areas of what is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. And for 17 years, he labored among the tribes there with no apparent success. And he finally returned back to Canada after he was driven out of the area by one of the tribal leaders. And he died nine years later in 1938 believing that all of his efforts had resulted in nothing but failure. Well, in 2010, a team of missionaries returned to those same areas to minister to what they thought were unreached people groups. And what they found astounded them. Eight villages within a 34-mile radius all had thriving churches. Each of those churches had their own choirs that wrote their own gospel songs. One of those villages had a stone cathedral that could seat up to a thousand people. But at some point, the congregation had become too large for that building, and so they started a church planting movement in the villages around them. And when the missionaries who were there inquired about the origins of the churches, the tribal leaders referenced this man named Leslie, though they couldn't really remember if that was his first name or his last name. And with a little more research the missionaries learned of Dr. William Leslie, the man who lived and labored among those tribes all those years before. One man labored for 17 years with no visible fruit. And almost 100 years later, tribes that had been hostile to the gospel were transformed into reproducing communities of faith. Insignificant origins, inconspicuous growth, but incredible results. That's how the kingdom of God comes. That is what the kingdom of God is like. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you use our small, ordinary acts of faithfulness to grow your kingdom here on earth. But Lord, we confess that we're impatient. We we confess that our faith is often small when we don't see the things happening that we want to happen. So Lord, we pray that you would grow our faith. We pray that you would help us to trust you, that you are bringing your saving reign upon this earth. Would you help us to to wait for that day, to pray for that day, 
to labor for that day that you will come again and the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And Lord, as we wait for that day, we pray that you would strengthen us to be faithful to you. We thank you that you have given us the bread and the wine that we're about to partake to strengthen us to be faithful to you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would now set apart these small, ordinary elements to help the kingdom of God grow in our own hearts and our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.